Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. Hey there, Order Up show listeners. This is Tommy from Ops Analytica. For those of you who aren't familiar with what Ops Analytica does, I can sum it up in one statement. We help you guys identify issues that are happening in your locations so that you can solve them and address them before they start affecting customers, sales, and profits. Right now, 95% of the restaurant chains, hospitality chains in the country are backing into what's happening by looking at sales, food costs, labor costs, liquor costs, and customer satisfaction data. Let me tell you something. If you've got a problem at a location and it's showing up in your sales or your costs or your profitability, it's too late. It's already affecting your business very badly. Couple months of really bad operations at one location can poison the sales and profits in that location for years. It takes years to regain that trust, to regain those sales. So stop looking at lagging indicators and, and obsolete data and just get real-time operations data about what's happening in your business so that you can address issues quickly and stop them from affecting your sales, your profits, and your personal stress. Check us out at opsanalytica.com. Thanks. Hey there, Order Up podcast listeners. This is Tommy Yanolis, your host for this uh, episode, and I am excited to welcome Steen Sellers uh, to the podcast. So Steen, welcome to the Order Up show. How are you doing, sir? Great, Tommy. Thanks for having me on today. All the way from Morgan ah. County, California. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, we uh, we got introduced to a, a good friend of ours, and uh, Steen is a guy after my own heart. He's into training, he's into ops, he's into sanitation, and I, I said I got to get him on the show. Um, so, Steen, I don't, as we were going over in the sort of the pre warm up here, you know, we have sort of the same format on every episode when we interview. Just going to ask you a series of questions and. Uh, and we'll get started here. So the first question is, explain what you do today and then take us through your career progression from your first job to where you are now. Wow, okay, that's not a, that's not a small <laughs> bite, but we'll, we'll, we'll chew on it. So how do, you, how do you eat an elephant, Tommy? <laughs> one bite at a time, man, one bite at a that's time. That's it, I just wanna know how you cook that thing, right? So my job <laughs> is to give you the operations and teach you how to cook an elephant. Um, I'm currently an executive recruiter for a well-known company out here in California. We, we, we service across the nation and internationally, uh, primarily chef-driven concepts, uh, working with the likes of the Mina Group, Shula's, uh, Fox, uh, you name it. We have we work with them in pocket. I've been um, I, I'm, I'm having the pleasure of working with Belcampo and their expansion into the East Coast and uh, expanding here in San Francisco and California. Um, uh, some great brands out there and some small, small chefs, small chefs coming, just coming on the scene and we're developing them as well. We're an overall nice. service so we can help from uh, complete hiring to just identifying the best talent for the best fit for their, for their needs. Um, how did I start in this business? Um, oddly enough, at a burger stand in Berkeley, California named Oscars, infamous, mm -hmm. one of those great places where you just was it closed maybe four years ago? It had been in business that long. I mean, it just everything was fresh, grilled, open flame, and I cut 
150 pounds of onions a day, eight cases of uh, tomatoes, uh, seven cases of lettuce, and did everything, all the other grunt work until they worked me up to the broiler. And then I worked from there into San Francisco, where I opened a company, a, a restaurant, uh, ironically owned by the son of the gentleman who built Pills Pier 39. He uh, mm-hmm. opened up Pier, Pier Market. I became a sous chef. We went on to open a little concept. I'm not sure if you and your audience have heard of it, Chevy. <laughs> nice. So that seemed to have been very um, uh, progressive and well thought out. Uh, Chevy's went on to be, of course, an enormous brand for so many, for so many years, and it is still in play today. Um, from Chevy's, I worked into the front of the house with my mentor, Dennis Berkowitz, in the San Francisco Bay Area, Max's World. Uh, he had singing waiters. I was in college at the time, and I was a professional opera singer at the time as well. So I did, uh, I waited tables, I managed, and got into the front of the house. Uh, eventually, my wife and I, once we graduated, we moved down to L.A., and I got in with Cheesecake Factory. Worked with Cheesecake Factory for a number of years in the senior management and opened a bunch of restaurants with them. Uh, I worked in every location in L.A. So I trained in Brentwood. I worked at Beverly Hills. I opened Pasadena, brand-new restaurant. I helped staff that restaurant, staff Marina Del Rey, ran, ran, ran Marina Del Rey, uh, helped in uh, Redondo, uh, helped open Mission Viejo, helped open uh, Irvine, uh, helped uh, helped open Brea, a Thousand Oaks. Uh, where didn't I work? Uh, so <laughs> it was Cheesecake Factory is in my blood. Well, the only reason I didn't, I'm no longer with Cheesecake Factory is we moved to Orange County. And uh, there was a wait to get in to work at Cheesecake Factory in Orange County because they only had the three at the time. Um, so I went and moved, worked for a small regional concept that was growing uh, that uh, got me here to Orange County and then uh, ended up with uh, Elephant Bar Restaurant as uh, district manager for them for many years in food and de- food and beverage development with Chef Reinhardt. Reinhardt developed the uh, Velvet Turtle, old school concept that went very large here in California across country. Um, and then, of course, Elephant Bar Restaurant was expanding, getting up to 38, 40 restaurants. And it was more known, known as the Global Grill. It was quite Pan-Asian, um, wood-fired grill, everything fresh. Uh, was a great concept, um, and uh, with them, I had an opportunity to move to all all things. I someone recruited me to Fridays, and I I don't know why why I went to Fridays other than some friends of mine were in there, and it was a great opportunity. It was they dangled a lot of money, but you know it was um, fun. And Fridays, um, I opened some re- new restaurants for them, and uh, ran some high volume for them, and we had a great time. Um, got recruited into um, uh, working for a franchisee of Dunkin' Donuts opening up here in Orange County. Uh, they were going to open, they had a contract for 30, and uh, we opened the first flagship store, the, the busiest, highest volume restaurant they'd ever opened, period, end of story, for the first first day of sales. Uh, went on to work for them for a good year or so and got recruited to Black Bear Diner, where with Black Bear Diner, I uh, helped open uh, two new restaurants, and they uh, promoted me to director of uh, new store openings and training. And I opened, uh, put together their national training team, uh, regional training team, all the training products and uh, SOPs, uh, put together the sanitation SOPs, and uh, we opened 35 restaurants in three years. 
Wow. That was a very succinct resume. I am impressed. <laughs> that was really cool. That's about as succinct as, that's about as, succinct as I'm going to make it. I mean, along the way, uh, where there, there was a lot more. When I was a chef back in San Francisco, I had spent some time in um, some very sort of the, the Berkeley gourmet ghetto restaurants. So, sure. I, I, you know, I was with them here and there, curing meat, learning how to be a chef, learning uh, the ground up rules. So I, I've known operations from every every section of the of the restaurant. I'm a firm believer that as a leader, if you don't know how to uh, break apart your dish machine and put it back together again, and teach the dish dish person how to dig out, uh, you don't have any business running your restaurant. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's cool too that like you were with P. So I was with P.F. Chang's in the late '90s, early 2000s. You were with uh, Cheesecake, and that was kind of both those brands were kind of ascending sort of at the same time where they were really starting to add some unit count there and Absolutely. Uh, high volume, really well run. Like it, those were great times to be in some great restaurant companies where you saw an hour and a half wait on a Monday night. And it was like, you know, I don't think I, 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 I've heard of very few restaurants that are doing anything like that. But that, I saw that period of time and it was such a, it was such a cool yeah. period of time to be a part of, you know? Absolutely. The, you know, the last Cheesecake Factory I worked with, we opened Sherman Oaks, and that redo of that mall was, the only reason it existed was because the Cheesecake Factory was doing $20 million a year. Yeah. You're just like, God bless. Those numbers are insanity. I mean, you're, um, and also, you're, you're literally selling 10 tickets at a time, and there's a line of servers and runners just running food out. It, it's a machine. It's a factory. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting too with, uh, and I'm sure you got this because at the time, the Cheesecake Factory was such a systems restaurant. Like I remember, because I was waiting tables uh, at the time too. And it was like, you had, uh, I remember like if you went to go to work at Cheesecake, you had to take like a month with no tips and just learn that menu, you know? And then there's the legendary three hour long, you know, uh, line check that they used to do, you know, like that was just this insanity line check. Is, is that where you kind of got some of your love of systems out of that brand? You know, I, I've always been a systems wonk. Everybody I've worked with has been very systems oriented from my first job on, but Cheesecake Factory really honed the eye for detail and certainly uh, honed my palate. Uh, their first test for management development is a blind tasting of 50 sauces. And you have to describe the beginning, middle, and end palette, uh, and three of the most uh, in, um, three of the most descriptive words that, that, that describe the, what sauce it is. You have to name the sauce, the shelf life, and four items that it goes in. And that's your test. Good luck, bye-bye. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. After a while, you get sick because there's, you know, you, you it's garlic. So I mean, sweet. you know, everything yeah. everything has garlic <laughs> in it, right? So yeah, it, it was. Uh, but they, you know, they pride themselves on owning half of Gilroy's garlic. So, you know, a, an amazing system because their base sauces produce other base sauces. So it's really a quite a simple process of how they manage their product. Not without giving away company secrets, but it's simple and it's and it's effectual, effective. And uh, they get it done. And inventory is the only part that really makes people shudder. 
Sure. I'm, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh God, I can't even imagine that. Which is like, I'm just like mentally thinking about all the different food that they have in that like kitchen and how long that must take. Yeah, I was part of the, the team that rolled out rolled out rolled out the uh, new barcoding inventory system years ago. Sure, sure. Well, and you know, here's the other thing too, though. You have to remember, like, you know. If I'm a $20 million a year restaurant, I probably have an exec in four suits. So an exec in four suits, they should be able to come through and a couple of like supervisors, you should be able to bang out the inventory like as a team relatively not horribly, right? Like it's not one guy doing the whole thing. That you, that guy would, you know, end up killing himself. But like, you know, you should, like you would hope that they have a couple of people out there and they're all working together. You know, it's it, it, it's incredibly and very well organized, and as it should be, because you can't have systems like that without everything in its yeah. place. It's all mise en place, and you don't yeah. divert from it. And it's kind of like in a retail environment where if I'm going to go into a retail environment, you know, the, the end cap looks like the end cap here. It doesn't look like the end cap in Georgia because sure. it's all the same storage, even though the configuration of the storage or the, the walk-ins or the, the back house uh, may be different, the configuration of where you store things has to be the same. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Sheet to shelf, right? Our, every time. That's always every that's time. such an important part of things. Plus, now, plus they really, they, you know, they, they simplified the systems as much as they could with electronics, barcoding, weighing. It was uh, a lot easier. Yeah, of course. Now, you said you, you got lucky. I, I would say, I would suggest that you got lucky because you started off working with really systems-oriented people. So talk to me about that. I mean, what data, because we're a data company, but like what data were you guys like, because systems, the only reason why you have systems is to produce consistency and also to get data, right? Like those are the two reasons why you implement systems. Uh, but just let's talk really quickly about data and data-driven decision-making a little bit and how important that is to be successful. You know, early on, I was working with companies. Even even the even the burger stand had just off of working with sheets alone, just standard mm -hmm. fill in the blank sheets. Understood how much product they were serving in each category each day, so that they could then forecast and accumulate accumulate knowledge and forecast appropriately yeah. according to sales. They weren't just winging it, right? So it was yeah. a very well-honed machine. So you fast forward, you're in San Francisco opening a $20 million restaurant on the wharf, uh, Fresh Fish, and they're one of the first ones to have a DOS POS system on everything, and it caps for detail on a daily basis, and you do within a half a gallon of how much clam chowder you need to make for a Saturday. But like, and that's absolutely amazing. But talk about what, just elaborate a little bit more on that. Why is that so important? Because I think that's truly what most independent guys struggle with. So let's take you it know, out of next let me step. Get, yeah. Let me give you, an, let's, let's use the analogy of retail. So you're a shoe salesman, you need to sell shoes. But in order to sell shoes, you got to put shoes and show them off. That means you have to have a shoe in every single size for that particular shoe. That's a lot of money sitting on your wall, yep. right? You put a lot of money just sitting there hoping that someone's going to buy it. Now, the art of food management is I've got to sell um, a soup 
But I know, that based on what I've sold in the past yeah, for the last 13 weeks on this day, an average of how much soup I've sold. Therefore, I can order what I need without having to bank extra product on my shelf. Therefore, my cash flow is tied is not tied up in inventory sitting mustering on my sheet on my on, on my shelves. And then keep in mind, shoes don't expire; they go out of style. But food does expire, and therefore we have to run the gambit of using that food before it expires. Yeah. So we don't we don't lose that money. We can lose the money quickly. So it's always a fine line. You don't want to have a lot of money on your shelf. That doesn't make sense. People deliver every single day, everywhere you are, in most markets, except for maybe Sundays and holidays. So there's no reason why you can't take a look at this year, this week, last year on July 4th, we sold $10,000 worth of soup. And I know I need all these ingredients and how much ingredients. And I've, my computer system shows me the breakdown of how much I need for each batch of soup. And it gives me a number of what I'm going to need to prepare that soup. And then I look at what I have on hand. Do I need, how much more do I need to fill in the blank to make that goal? And then I need to make some the next day because I'm going to be slow, but I'll still need a little bit of soup. So then I do a calculated, uh, a calculation. And you know what? You always curse your algebra teacher. Like, what was that all about? You know, I, why would I ever need algebra? And here we are using algebra, right? So you got to bless the mathematicians, and you, 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 and maybe I'm getting really nerdy, but it's a real simple process. You don't, you don't want to have too much money on your on your shelves. You don't need that much. Yeah, absolutely. And like where we play is really in multi-unit ops and and providing that operations data, and 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 so. Uh, where the GM's really focused on ordering and, and, and you know, maintaining inventory and, and food costs, controlling their, their costs, where we really focus our platform on at least is just more on the day-to-day -day operations because that's the biggest visibility gap that most restaurants have because uh, they do have inventory systems and they have POS systems. And so they know what they sold and they know, you know, if people are following recipes and portion controls, they they can back into what they should have and forecasting. Yeah. Uh, well, that's awesome. So uh, I think you've thoroughly answered the first question. <laughs> yeah. Well, for I uh, only say tag on multi-unit. If you're looking at data stream for multi-unit, the, the the benefit of having that is is to be able to forecast for the purchaser for the company so that you can maximize your discounts coming in and therefore lowering your food costs. Oh, absolutely. Yep. There's a, I don't think of her name. She sold her company. There was a lady out here. She used to be the purchaser for um, uh, the Rock Bottom Group before they got acquired sure. and had all their issues. But she went out and started her own co-op, you know, where she was basically bringing on small regional brands, you know, 50, 100 unit brands. And, you know, then she went and looked at their entire menu guide and then she was going right to the farmer's. Here I need twenty million dollars in cheddar cheese, you know, and then it, it was amazing what they were able to do over there. Um, all right, next, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, next question: What is the big project or initiative that you're kind of working on right now? Well, 
uh, COVID-19, <laughs> since I'm a recruiter, kind of sucked all that away. So <laughs> it, there, I, w- I would not say that there's a great big project. I was working with a group out of uh, San Francisco, uh, just opening a presence in New York City, and have an established, pro- uh, established program here in L.A., um, and oddly enough, right before the COVID, we were working on cloud kitchens, um, yeah. staffing and creating cloud kitchens for them. And they were exactly at the right moment at the right time with their cloud kitchen, which for your audience is basically, uh, it's not a public access restaurant. It's a small environment where they package food that only comes in through the internet for delivery. So, uh, and they, they, they work with all the major delivery services, third party. So they don't hire people to deliver. They really have a kitchen, a, a kitchen manager and people to cook and someone to, to, to clean up. And they have a small environment and they, they keep a small amount of, of, uh, of a product on hand and get daily deliveries. And they crank out eighty dollars to $100,000 a week in just delivery. Wow. And it's the future. And this is absolutely the future because they hit it right at the beginning of the, of the COVID and their sales just went through the roof and they're doing an amazing job and it's quality and it's easy. And then they have consistency of packaging. They, they were able to, you know, uh, utilize, uh, you know, all, utilize every resource they have and make it very user friendly, biodegradable. Uh, they're hitting everything on them and the food is delicious. And they already had a reputation from their, you know, brick and mortar. So was, and they already had a reputation for that they had just opened. They were getting a reputation for meeting food and catering, blah blah blah. But this really just took took off. And so I see that as the next big project coming back is helping other clients develop the cloud kitchen for their concept. So, and real quick with these cloud kitchens. It's one brand. So it's one brand that they're just, they just took, they built the brand out uh, in their regular stores. And now they've just said, hey, now we're going to just, just do delivery only kitchens as well, just to help meet demand across the, the, the area. Is that correct? Or are they hosting multiple brands worth of food? Well, it was, it was better to take the burden of delivery only out of the yep. kitchen. Yeah. So that they could best serve their busy kitchens at their sit down restaurant. Right? Sure. So and they and, and this this they were able to use a smaller square footage, which enables them to pop into uh more localized areas and therefore kind of like a cell tower. They cover more areas yeah. by just popping up a smaller unit. So and yeah. the units are not they're not they're very low overhead and very easy to manage in terms of, you know, product coming in and out. They just, they just get it done. And it's a great concept. I'm very well versed in how to start these up now. It's, um, it's easy to get the talent for them because you have, you, you have a lot of, like in San Francisco, you cannot, you eat, people are stealing sous chefs and line cooks and talented servers and managers by just walking across the street and offering them a dollar more. Yeah, of course. It's brutal. So now you have now you're tasked with uh, I need to create this kitchen, but I also need to give people a quality of life and higher money. And they're able to do that. 
Well, and I mean, just in general as well with these cloud kitchens, like, I mean, the other brilliant thing is, is like, you just need the cooks. You don't need a registered guy. You don't need the front of the house guys. You know, you have a dishwasher and a couple of cooks and it's, they can have the radio blaring and they can talk and have fun. You know what I mean? Like they can enjoy their job a lot more because they're not like, you know, if you're in a, a, a Cheesecake or a PF Chang's or any of these production uh, big, big box restaurants, but they have like that open kitchen format. Well, then, you know, you got to be, you're, you're part of the show. You're part of the environment. You know what I mean? And, you know, I remember when I was cooking back in the 90s, the best thing ever was that the, you know, like the waiters, yeah, the waiters made more money than the cooks, but the cooks got to drink soda, and, you know, and listen to ACDC and like just jam out in the back. And if you had a good crew of guys, you're talking and you're laughing and making jokes and everyone's working and it's a really fun environment. And, you know, once we went to that sort of open kitchen concept, a lot of that fun went away because now the cooks were part of the show and they couldn't be like, you know, being themselves, you know, they had to be on display. Absolutely. So. And then you have you you have the, the ease of how you plate because the plating is not having to be yes. so fantastical as it is nowadays. Yeah. You're not it you have a simple format and you're done. And then the beauty is no one touches money. Yeah, exactly. Or credit cards or buses tables. Yeah. No, in in this new be- COVID world, it's totally a different game. Yeah, the the invoices are electronic. The wrap up of the sales is done remotely from some other area. You just yeah. have the guys, you just have your team clocking in and out, and someone goes in and does inventory. Yeah. And then, so it's really, a, it's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful way to do business. <clears throat> so I'm encouraging the clients to expand into that. I think that it's the, the wave of the future. I think that every, every, everybody out there who owns a concept should really consider a well-placed cloud-based uh, kitchen, uh, especially if you're looking at trying to attract uh, businesses or catering events or, you know, if you're in a high high office uh, section of the That's world, you know, just that, that kind of thing is gone are the local sandwich shops. People don't have time. They yeah. want you to have it done, deliberate, and, and done, and simple and easy and good, clean, wholesome food. Yep. We, uh, I think so. NRD Capital, uh, they, they, the guys that bought Ruby Tuesdays, they just came out with a software platform that would allow brands to expand into markets they're not already in through, uh, cloud kitchens, but, or through, through, uh, existing restaurants. So let's say your Capriati's, which I think is a pretty, pretty big growing sub-brand out of, I think it's Nevada or wherever. Um, but like, you know, they have maybe a hundred locations right now, but they don't have, maybe they don't have one in your area. So like these guys are trying to come up with a way where like maybe out of a Ruby Tuesday kitchen, they have all the ingredients to make Capriati subs delivery only. Because what I think, I think the real key to this, to the cloud kitchen thing uh, for existing restaurants, right? Because existing restaurants are going, well, unfortunately I'm sitting on a 5,000 or 8,000 square foot building, you know what I mean? And, I, and I'm here and I'm, I'm stuck with this damn thing. <laughs> like I, I'm an Applebee's and I, 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 you know, I've got this space, 
I can't get rid of it. Like, you know, I'm on a lease or whatever, and I'm not getting the, the total throughput that I might want. So I think what would be really interesting is how can, instead of building brand new kitchens, right, which all that does is helps the guys selling kitchen equipment, we've got a million kitchens out there right now that are available to be used. How do we get it so we can get multiple concepts running out of one restaurant? So I have a bar and grill and I still have, I'm still doing okay, but somehow I'm, we can figure out a way where I can maybe get another 500 or $1,000 a day and third party delivery sales that maybe aren't my core product. You know what I mean? Or my, my core concept, but I've got a kitchen, I've got trained cooks, I've got walk-in space. How can I make this happen, you know? Well, you would see a great blending of uh, pop-up um, pop up delivery, you know, pop up, uh, re you know, restaurant companies. So, you know, they they can't. The problem with marrying, say, um, a, an existing restaurant is, can they at lunchtime add the burden to the line of all that yep. to go? Sure. Right. So, is it physically exactly. possible? Because is it physically possible, or can they batch cook? and offer items that are easily pre-cooked or pre-packaged, and they do a pre-packaging and cooking off in the morning, and then that food goes out accordingly, or it's really quickly assembled in almost, um, I hate to say the word buffet, but it's the only way to do it. Yeah. Um, it you know, and you, 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 you tailor their menu specific to ease of delivery and packaging, which can yeah. be done because you could, on any menu, you know, look at P.F. Chang, your 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 yeah. uh, your doppelganger, right? They nothing to say that they can't have, uh, you know, fifty orders of of uh, the uh, the lettuce wraps ready, and a yeah. lot of it prepackaged, ready to go, and heat and throw in and package it, and it goes out the door. Not to mention other items that can be bulk cooked that will not detract from the in-house service at all. So systems yeah. can be applied, and I've been I've been doing that and working with my clients to take a look at the flow of their systems. I have a good friend of mine. He is a systems wonk for a very large, well-known QSR that um, has really got their systems in check, and they do massive amounts of volume because of the systems and how they're how it's reappropriated to make it more efficient for one person to do multitask. So the same thing sure. applies, and you you just your systems walk the the crud out of it. You give the the, the you 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 pop up on your you have your online delivery menu to be specific items, you know, and then you give yeah. people a chance if they want to order the full menu, then it's going to go through a different store, and they can either pick yeah. up or they go through that, and there may be an extra time involved in that because we want to be careful and nurturing our guests that are in the store as well. So we have to balance, but certainly the systems are easily to balance. And I, I specialize in creating those kind of systems. Well, yeah. And one of the things I've been kind of preaching for people too, just in general, especially like if you're more on the single unit operator or you're a small brand or a small chain is let's say you're a burger restaurant. Like you just do like the restaurant you used to work at. You have your core burgers and then you have your burger, uh, you have your website now and people can order your burgers. But then why wouldn't you create two ghost brands? 
right? Why wouldn't you create a gourmet burger brand that has the exact same burgers with different names that are maybe slightly more expensive because you do a slightly different menu uh, descriptions, you know what I mean? And then have a, like, maybe even have a, like, bargain burger brand too, ghost brand, just exists on literally the web, it only exists on the delivery portal websites, right? And uh, say maybe just slightly smaller portions, just to get your food cost in line. Why wouldn't you have three representations of the exact same menu, uh, just branded differently? And then also, maybe you don't do anything, like in the mornings, it's just all prep. Well, why wouldn't you have a ghost breakfast sandwich brand? You know what I mean? Why wouldn't you try to maximize that the like because delivery can be effective when you are able to like cut other costs around it, right? So like, why Absolutely. wouldn't you try to get creative like that kind of stuff? So yeah, people can still come get a beer and a burger. They can still order your core burger, but you have these other ghost entities out there because what you're really trying to do in any restaurant is just generate as much revenue between six a.m. and two a.m. that you possibly can, right? Absolutely. And it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So I, I hope people like listen to this and go, oh my gosh, why am I not doing that? Because you can literally go on to DoorDash's website and create a fake restaurant concept that delivery only out of your restaurant. You know what I mean? Exactly. Not that hard. You don't even have to have hosting. You know, they they do everything. Exactly. And that exactly. at that point they're a value add. So anyway. Exactly. And um, if you have if you're the kind of brand that has a core couple of items you obviously translate the core items onto the ghost kitchen but you also can offer and tantalize people that only do uh, and uh, ghost kitchen delivery systems and give them their own special things out of the out of the out of the product you already are giving so that you give people more chances so they don't necessarily have to come in they get a different choice by doing delivery and therefore you up the amount of hits you get a week from that one guest absolutely yeah, because it's not just about the first time. You want them to come back, and then you want them to get delivered on Saturday when they're watching something at home, and then maybe they're going to go out on Tuesday with some business people and blah blah blah. And then maybe they'll come back for lunch on Monday, or well, they'll have, saw... or they'll have the ghost little kitchen delivered for a party of ten at the board meeting. And and even in a, as important as that is, and I saw this at the beginning too. Somebody a very at the beginning of COVID was all your promotions have to be to drive the next occasion through the next um, through the next uh, a portal or, or through a different channel, right? So you came in and you got your burger and then we're giving you, uh, we're giving you something in your, on your receipt tape or a little thing in your check insert or on the table or however we email it to you that says, hey, you know, if you love like this burger joint, well, you should try our breakfast sandwiches through this, our, our other concept, breakfast bobs or whatever it is. And you're just driving different occasions to different things. And you're trying to get the occasion to come in in a timely manner. So it's got a one week expiration date. So you can drive that repeat traffic, you know, and just constantly churn. Every time someone comes in, they're getting a coupon to try another concept, but in a very short period of time. You know, exactly. Get Bogo exactly. if you do it within the next four days. So try to yeah, keep I mean, the trend there's, there's, moving. There's there's software out there that will uh, that is available free uh, 
to businesses where they'll just background on your screen. And when lunch comes up, there'll be pop-ups that are supplied by the, uh, by the purveyor uh, to remind them, hey, your favorite meal is here. And by the way, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a carrot on a stick about that. You know, so yeah. there's plenty of ways to market it out. Absolutely. Oh, man. Okay. So let's see what the next question is. Uh, what is the one thing in the industry or your business that's sort of keeping you up at night right now? Um, either one's fine. I think right. I think right now, I, I I worry the most about perception of the guest and their related fear or un, un, mis, misinformation about sanitation. Sure. In a restaurant, in a physical restaurant, I think that people don't understand that prior to COVID, a restaurant, depending on what state you live in. It's probably one of the cleanest establishments, and I'll argue even more, even cleaner than most hospitals, um, to dine at uh, because of the structure and uh, the amount of laws that surround the the feeding of the public. Because we hold sure. the public's health directly in our hands, and so the the keeping contagion and the spread of disease is utmost to our business. My saying, and I, I cornered this phrase is, if it ain't safe, if it isn't clean, it isn't open. And therefore, I'm a, I'm a big uh, food safety and sanitation nerd. I teach it, I preach it. It is um, ultimately, you know, people, I don't think the average guest is going to know that it's clean, but they, they need to be more informed now and in how do we inform them Gently, and I think I I imagine that people want to see the 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 the, uh, the concept actively participating in cleaning while they're dining, and I think that because the perception would be then oh this is a safe place, so I what keeps me awake is how am I how to develop systems of of always keeping in the peripheral vision of the guest people washing their hands repeatedly, people changing their gloves repeatedly, people walking and keeping their masks on, practicing so, uh, physical distancing as much as they can, uh, respectful of how they bring food to and from the table, um, reassuring the, the client, because you see how these commercials have come on and saying, well, we've increased our safety and sanitation. Well, that makes me concerned. What did you do before, yeah. right? Right, that that well, makes me unnerved. So as as a client, so I want to fix that. That's what keeps me up at night. And I I have some great ideas, and I'm sharing them with some certain clients who want to use my services. But it's 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 easy enough to change perception. It's all about being seen. Yeah, that's so funny. So I coined the term at the beginning of this thing, sanitation theater, uh, with the idea that sanitation theater is uh, that you're doing the cleaning and the sanitizing and the disinfecting, but you're doing it in a very bold upfront way. And my biggest concern with the whole COVID thing had nothing to do with the back of the house uh, because other than put some masks on some people, I think if everyone wears masks, I think the back of the house is pretty tight. I mean, we're used to dealing with viruses. We're used to norovirus. We're used to cross contamination. Um, you know, I think this, 
highlighted, you know, hey, don't work sick. You know, I think every, I think the word got out very well through this whole thing that, you know, if you're coughing and you feel sick, don't go to work. Like, just don't go anywhere. Like, stay home because you are, you know, very, you, you are massively contagious if you're out there and you feel sick, you're in real trouble. The front of the house is what worries me um, because we, we were not prepared. The restaurants, the way that they were running in March, March 1st of this year versus, you know, people weren't wiping down menus right after they left the table. They were going into a box next to the register. They were getting brought back to the host stand. You know, we had all those condiments on the tables, all this stuff. You know, we got these soda machines where people drink and they get their spit on the cup and then they go get more soda. And, you know, there's a lot of things but now like that this one is a big of a deal because we didn't have such a contagious virus out there. Right. So I, my big concern, this whole thing, what we preached a lot was how can you reduce the risk of transmission via inside the restaurant and the front of the house side of things? Um, and, and how do we, uh, but the big thing is how do we communicate that? Because the problem is it's easy to communicate it when someone's in the restaurant because they see you cleaning. If they see someone go up with a squirt bottle or a towel and they wipe down a doorknob, that's great. How do I communicate that I'm clean and safe when you're making your decision and you're making your decision in your house or in your car, right? How do I let you know that, hey, we're doing the right things? Well, I think that's where we come in with our regulatory uh, and uh, commissions like uh, restaurant associations. And we yeah. develop a quick, we, we, we develop commissions locally and nationally who come in and put a seal of approval on training processes that we've established on maintenance and uh, a higher sense of uh, cleaning and standards. Uh, so you have a visual that's associated with the, the, the higher level of sanitation. Um, I think, you know, obviously working in hand in hand with our health department, but our health department resources are so very strained okay. right now. And I yeah. don't see that, I don't see that budget opening up anytime soon. <laughs> so it's very difficult to partner with people who are overseeing 150, 200 restaurants in a, in a weekly basis. Um, but can we self-govern and can we put out that, that word? And can you educate people with simple, simple signage? I see a lot of complicated signage that nobody's really stopping to read. I went to a restaurant for the first time the other day and there was this uh, full eight and a half by 11, par you know, two paragraph thing about telling me how to wash my hands and keep my mask on, and here's my responsibilities. I, I don't want to hear that. I want, yeah. to, I, want you, I want you to model it for me, and we model it as a society. So yeah. the, the, the purveyor models the behavior, and the guest models it back. And because we've got to keep it simple, because people don't want to have it overcomplicated. They need to know that you're visually cleaning not just wiping with a rag but using a cleanser that is clearly yeah. labeled as a cleanser and clearly taking the time to come behind and clean the touch points and have a sense of that and then the management team has to be out there on the floor they have to be out there uh, more so than ever before touching people touching tables touching talking to the guests reassuring them talking about what they're doing working with the guests while they've got the guests at the table. Because right now, who's talking to the people who are doing the third-party delivery? I don't know who's oh, touching yeah. my food. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so funny. So we we developed signs uh, that we just gave away for free uh, that you could size to be whatever you wanted, uh, a WHO pledge and a couple of those things. Uh, one of the things that we can do in our system that uh, is interesting is we can track all the cleaning activities across a chain and then that chain can stream that data right on their website. So right in their app, you could actually see, hey, we've done 500,000 cleaning activities today, you know, and watch that ticker climbing, you know what I mean? That kind of a thing. Um, just to try to give them some, some stuff that they can do sort of pre trying to convince the customer to come on in. Um, but yeah, and we have, we have a couple other tools around that too, risk assessment and all that stuff. I would just to help people's friends. If I had a full service restaurant, I would absolutely be expanding uh, my my budget to include um, the a visual sanitation crew on labeled yeah. as such on the floor, yeah. actively uh, walking around sanitizing touch points. Oh, absolutely, and removing them smartly. I, I truly believe that the restaurants that are, as they reopen have really gone through and done a risk assessment and said, okay, these are the areas where if someone was to cough, like I can't set the tables, preset the tables anymore, right? It's not doing that because I know if someone was to cough on that, I could potentially transmit COVID to a customer and they go through their operation from the, the view of the guests, from the minute they hit the front door through when they leave and they reduce every touch point possible so I'll give you some examples. I went out last night and had a nice dinner with my wife because we sold our house. And so, and we went to one of our favorite restaurants and it's an upscale uh, restaurant. And like I had to push a button on the little handheld cash. I had to push my tip button, like on the little handheld, you know, credit card machine thingy. And then I also, I, you know, I don't know if they wipe down their menus or not. They have a plastic, covered it's a you know it's a plastic menu but it's so i mean so i basically got my menu touched it went why did i touch that then i went and like got more sanitizer came back to the table and then they were like they, i don't think they were doing to be honest i'm not gonna say the name of them but they, I think they did a great job they were wearing reusable gloves and they just all kept them in their pockets so then they would put the gloves on to go deal with dishes you know what i mean like there was a yeah, lot I mean, of things are and then I was like, uh, yeah. Yeah, those are very, those are all very old habits. Like putting yes. a clean rag in your apron makes it a dirty object and, and full of bacteria. So now you're transmitting yeah. and, and, and that's not appropriate. Single use gloves are exactly what they're intended for. Single use. use. So the, 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 the purveyor, the, the restaurant, has to invest and put in the budget now that the idea that they're going to be using a single use glove and how does that and teach and teach and train what that means and so that the guest sees you always changing your gloves the guest needs to see and be reassured that those habits are in yeah. place and the yeah, businesses that will stay open and remember we live in a litigious society that's what we're really all waiting for in the elephant to drop is yeah. who's going to be the first one sued because they got COVID-19 from this restaurant. 
<laughs> it's like you've been reading my blog, Steen. I feel like one of the big things that we've been promoting is obviously our system self-documenting. It's just like you've got to document all this because right and during the outbreak phase, which we're sort of coming out of because we're reopening, they weren't testing to see where anybody got this stuff. Like they didn't do contact tracing. But in the future, which could be two weeks from now, uh, they are going to start figuring out, like if a big outbreak happens, they're going to trace it back to a person or a place, right? Well, if that, I mean, once they can start doing that, a certain element of our society is going to start suing everybody. McDonald's, a bunch of the McDonald's employees sued McDonald's corporate. They didn't sue the franchisee. Why would they? McDonald's corporate's got 10x the pockets, right? A million x the pockets. So they went and they said that they didn't feel safe in working at the McDonald's and they sued McDonald's corporate. So yeah, right. if you're not documenting all of this, then you're going to lose these suits, period. But if you at least so have documentation said, of what you did, you'll at least be able to defend yourself. Right. So you need the SOPs, the standard operating procedures, in yeah. line with every, every the CDC and the WHO and your local health department. And it needs to be uh, educated. Everybody needs to sign off on it. You need checklists. <laughs> you need consistency of operation. And you need it so that if a health department walks in and they observe, because they're going to get the call. Someone got COVID from your restaurant. They're going to come and observe yeah. op uh, the operations, just as if someone got food poisoning. So if they come yeah. in and they observe the operations and you're ad adhering to these principles and you have everybody, you have a file folder, electronic file folder full of every signature saying that they yeah. understand they were trained on these procedures, there goes away the litigiousness because they follow procedure. Absolutely. And it's got to be applied consistently every single day too. And if you're not doing that, you. It's going to get so bad because I don't think in other countries it's as easy to sue as it is here, right? Like here, we just let everyone sue everybody. And I mean, the example I keep using is I, I had a vacation plan right when the lockdowns happened and I didn't have any insurance on my vacation. Was in a, we were going to go to Europe. And so luckily, everybody in France was where we were going. They were so cool and they just rescheduled us for the fall and they didn't, I didn't lose anything, right? But could you imagine you go to a restaurant, you get COVID, you now have to self-quarantine and you miss out on a vacation that costs you 10K or something like that? Well, you're not gonna just be like, cool with that. You're not just gonna eat your 10K and be like, oh, well, I guess that happened. No, you're gonna sue whoever you can to get some sort of, you know, to be made whole, you know? Like, and, that, and that's where it's gonna go. And it's like, you got me quarantined and I didn't sell that deal. You know what I mean? Or I miss this event. That that there's a cost to that for people, and they're the sue people are going to start using that to sue everyone. Yeah, I think, oh, I think it's high time. I think it's high time. Maybe you and I collaborate on a webinar on uh, <laughs> to uh, for the for, for every small mom and pop for every level of restaurant to really put in these practices and create worksheets and checklists so that because. Restaurants, if nothing else, have to be consistent in everything they do. Otherwise, Absolutely. the McDonald's fries are not the McDonald's fries no matter where you go. Well, and yeah, I agree completely. But I also agree with what you said earlier. And I think this is, I, I, I've called on people, like, you know, I'm just one guy, right? But like, we, 
I'm not for bigger government intervention, and I understand how our system works. The FDA sets the guidelines, the states interpret it, the counties enforce it, I get it. But this is a time we have Surf Safe, right, which is the, the back of the house training program, sanitation training program from the NRA. But this is the time for the NRA to step up and, and put together a standard outside of the government where they need to lead, they need to stand up and lead the industry on a sanitation standard that I think exceeds what the FDA is calling for, um, that lays out clear guidelines on, uh, with the back of the house stuff with the CDC, the FDA, but then has a clear front of the house sanitation standard as well. And that you have to get certified on. And, and so that, like you said, I can walk up to see a sticker in the window of a restaurant and go, okay, beyond the ABCs, because we don't all have ABCs. You guys have them in California. We don't have them in Colorado, right? We need a, 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 a the, the NRA, or the National Restaurant Association, by the way, not National Restaurant Association, needs to certify restaurants and, and provide them the training and the ability to get certified as a sort of a private certification board or something. Or Yelp needs to do it. I would also call on Yelp to do this too. Because they're basically there. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's twofold. I mean, look at what the Better Business Bureau did for commerce, right? So the NRA could, you know, National Restaurant Association, along with its local chapters, can really state and local chapters can really affect change. And then they have the also the muscle to bring it out to the public in terms of public announcements via media. So yes. I think, um, you know, it's the perfect, it's the perfect time for uh, us to be more self-governing as a, as a, as a, as a group of restaurateurs and um, no time like the present to get started. I mean, why are you, why is anybody out there waiting? Exactly. And also too, let's be honest, like we need a minimum, we need a minimum standard for the country. Like there is, it doesn't vary a lot, but it does vary. I mean, you could literally have two restaurants and they could be in two different counties and you could have different health inspections going on just based where you are geographically. Some places it's 140, some places it's 135 for hot hold. You know, pork's different here. Like, we just need to go, look, this is the standard for the whole U.S. And if you, and that standard should exceed what, the little variations are, we're, you know, we're all going 145 or whatever it is, like for how it doesn't matter, but like we just need to have a standard because then the companies could all just kind of get on the same page across all jurisdictions, you know what I mean? Exactly. And just ex meet or exceed because that's a, that's a very large cost that people don't even think about, which is just the regulatory, uh, the regulatory cost. So yeah, I would agree with you completely on that. It's like, oh my gosh, come on guys. Like this is the time. Like this is the time to lead because you know, I mean, we don't know the numbers right now, but I think you could easily see a hundred to 200,000 restaurants might not make it through this. So easily. So, I mean, I've seen, I've seen, they, some, I've seen restaurants in the Bay area. Uh, because we do a lot of work in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, restaurants that have been mainstays in the the food culture for 30 years, closed for good, and it's for a lot of reasons. 
you know, because yeah. they want 15 to $20 an hour per person. And that's, uh-huh. that's not sustainable. That's not sustainable. It just, you're not, you can't do it. It's, I don't, well, I don't care who you, what you, what you think you can get done with that, but nobody can sustain. And then you're talking about cooks that are going to make 20 to $25 an hour. And you can't, you really can't physically sustain that payroll. You're not, no. you don't, you're, you're not even making salary for your, yourself as the manager or owner. You're, you're losing money. And that's unfortunate. Um, I believe in, in a fair wage, but we also need to increase the amount of people, the amount of jobs that are available so that more people can have jobs. And I don't know where the cutoff is, but, you know, you can't, you can't expect people to, you can't expect this to, to be sustainable because now you're selling a, a plate of pasta for $30. And yeah. you're going you're to run out of people who can afford that. Uh, I, yeah, I kind of believe we're going to have all chains, a lot of quick serve, a lot of fast food, and then there's going to be like this, there's going to be this like area, like the fast cat, the casual dining space is going to kind of go away. And then if you actually want to have a meal with a waiter, you're going to be at Del Frisco's. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's going to be this no man's land. Del Frisco's is on the chopping block, you know? So you're, you're, you're actually the, the ones that are proliferating in New York right now are the thousand dollar a plate bourgeois restaurant. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not going to that. First of all, I'm not a foodie, so like you know, I the ingredients would make me sick, and I wouldn't want to eat any of the food. But that's just me. Well, <laughs> I'm like a four year old. And, and, <laughs> and it's true, you know, you have a di- you have a section of the community of the of the populace that d- does want their meal to be quick, easy, and inexpensive. So therefore, there's yeah. going to be proliferation of uh, quick casual uh, in a higher le- higher elevated theme. Uh, with higher level of the seasonal ingredients, that's really the trend. <clears throat> so you see the demise of the of the family casual restaurant industry, but do you? We yeah. we we often think in terms of only two two sides of that con- that that coin, which is California and New York. In the Midwest, people are hitting family casual just like they were as if it never went away. So we have yeah. to keep in mind we can't just speak polarized. You know, it's um, people, you know, fast, fast food will always be there. McDonald's is always going to be a great bet on your, on your, if you're holding a portfolio um, and you just, you're just going to watch how it's going to get reinvented um, as we mature into this, into the next phase of what restaurant redevelopment is going to look like. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of real estate available too. So, you know. Yeah, you're going to People see, you're going to see the demise manage. of the large, big box restaurants for sure. I know it sucks. Uh, okay. Well, now we've got a depressing. We've got a depressing note. <laughs> uh, no, but, but I mean, it's the, the truth. The thing about We're, this is that the, rest, the restaurant is the restaurant business has always succeeded in reinventing itself. Those who yeah. have not deserve to go away. I'm sorry, that, that may be uh, hard, yeah. but it's just reality. You need to stay abreast of what is working and make it work right and so we will yeah. we will prevail in this and it will reinvent itself and people will continue to go out and die yeah, absolutely and, and truthfully we've been over developing anyways 
Like I have a whole theory that there's 20% of the restaurants in the country. And this 20%, by the way, is not a static 20. This, the, the players in this top 20% are not static. It's constantly moving. Like we talked about Cheesecake Factory and Chanks, early 2000s, you can touch those brands. They do not have the same power in the marketplace that they today that they did 20 years ago, right? But like there's a top 20% and those guys are making money and they are profitable and they are fun to go to and they are busy. And if you work at those restaurants during this time, you're going to be like, this is the greatest thing ever. This is what the restaurant business is supposed to be about. And then 80% are just getting by, uh, Pareto principle it out, right? They're just getting by best they can, different levels of profitability. And uh, that 20% is always shifting. And, you know, a lot of these guys at the bottom of the 80% are going to go away and that's going to free up a lot of talents. It's going to free up a lot of real estate. It's going to free up a lot of people. Um, uh, and some hot concepts are going to be able to snag that great rush of talent and some of these locations and they're going to be able to grow very quickly because they have a great yep. hot concept right now. And, and so exactly yeah, we'll be back up exactly to Right now, it's happening it's right now. Today. You've got you've got you've got a lot of investment teams out there looking for the failing franchises, looking for the opportunities right now. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, as we wrap up here, Steen, uh, the last question is: Just give us a funny war story if you got one. Um, just like one of those crazy, like could only happen once in your life stories, where you're like, "Oh my gosh." <laughs> uh. Funny. Well, I'm. What is it? Um, that's a hard one because it is. <laughs> I, I've, I've got, I've got, I've got good drunk stories from running Fridays, but I don't know if it's appropriate. Um, <laughs> I remember at two oh five a.m. trying to close the restaurant, and came out, I was overseeing, you know, get clearing the liquor out of everybody's hands and two women fighting over which, they were both, they were twin sisters, both fighting over which husband they were going to go home with. And they didn't want to go uh. home with their own husband. <laughs> oh, so, man. And there was slapping and vomiting. And it was not, I don't know if it's funny so much as sad, but funny at the same time, it was, it was just it was just the sign of come on you know just when have you had enough and this was before over service was was a real big thing and you know i sure. couldn't tell you if they had too much or this is just the way they were they were just and we had police were involved crying screaming oh. uh, confused men uh, apologetic, uh, people jumping in, trying to help each other. It was a mess. Uh, and, and it was, uh, you're, you just, I just scratched my head going, how is, I don't need a margarita that bad. I, I want to know how those women were raised. Cause that's the first thing, like, uh, when you started telling that story, I was just like, oh my gosh, like, are you kidding me? That's just, that's insane. But well, it, it's, it's a story for our times. How were the people raised to yeah. choose to, to uh, create judgment and havoc and anarchy and looting as opposed to yeah. uh, protesting peacefully? 
in the name of someone who died so unjustly. So I know, you know, uh, uh, and then it then it makes me it begs the question for me to look at our education system, and it begs me the question to look at at what we're doing as a society to not have that uh, that that uh, distance from being educated so that you're not raised in ignorance, you know. Um, because what, you know, we all have a hand in it. If we're truly uh, a great society, then we all have a hand in raising people up out of ignorance. Well, and I, and yeah, I don't want to get, and I, first of all, I, 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 I loved your comment there. Um, what I don't understand is, and I don't, I, so many of the businesses that are getting destroyed are these restaurants. And they're these single unit operator guys. Like if you if you throw a brick through a Starbucks, there's a pretty good chance that Starbucks actually owns that company. But if you throw a brick through a Subway or you know one of the million franchise restaurants in the world, you know what? That's owned by your neighbor. That's generally owned by somebody who's just doing their best to get by. You know what I mean? It's not like you're and they're not making a statement when you take a guy out. You know. And they're and they're the, the ones guy. that are involved in, and they're the ones that are involved in the community. They're the ones that are contributing yes. to the softball team. They're the ones that are hiring the youth. They're the ones yeah. giving the opportunity and growing within it. And you damage them, and they're they may even look like you. Yeah, and you don't know what a front window costs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a front window is not like a thirty dollar thing. A front window is real. Like it's thousands of dollars and a lot of these guys and what people don't realize too, and we didn't really get onto this, but we got to kind of wrap up here is that 80% of these restaurants couldn't survive on a hundred percent occupancy. And now their occupancies are being cut in half or a third and they are doing everything they can to just survive right now. And then to have all of this looting and not even just, the, the vandalizing things, but no one's willing to go down there to go buy some food. So the guy's not selling right. anything, but he's paying rent. He's got cooks because he didn't know that there was going to be a protest today. Like, you know, I, I don't want to like, I, I don't want to minimize what happened um, to the man in Minnesota and, and how horrifying that was. But like, I don't understand what this this rioting and this looting is all about. Like it's just it's hurting the most vulnerable people in society when they're the most vulnerable they've ever been because they've been shut down for the last three months. So well, it it know. is it is just as much as an agenda of division and inciting yeah. uh, rage and hate in order to get their point across. Just as much as 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 uh, it has been an incentive is an incentive uh, exactly of what bad cops have been doing and bad white people and bad people in general because there's bad people everywhere and uh you know uh it, it everybody every what we need to do is go at the root of hate in this country and obliterate it because yeah. and, and you're not going to get rid of it all but you can say that we have a zero tolerance for hate and that's not hateful yeah. that's just common sense and what we Absolutely. can do is come together over a great meal at our local restaurants and support them. Absolutely. Well, That's Steve, a community. Yeah.
Do you have anything you want to promote? <laughs> I thought it's such a weird, bad transition. But do, is there anything that you want to tell anybody about? Do you have a website or do you want to promote anything that you're doing, your consulting services, uh, real quick uh, as we wrap this up? Well, you know, for me, I do. I, I, I Everything we've talked about, I do on a consultation basis. I, I'm an executive recruiter. I work with culinary staffing. Uh, culinary staffing is uh, in out of Santa Clarita, California, but we're across the United States. Um, I have my own consultation business, Stellar Results, uh, kind of a combination of my first and last name, Steen Sellers, Stellar Results. And mm -hmm. um, I consult I, I consult on safety, food safety and sanitation. I'm a real nerd and wonk about that. Um, I take right now, I can take and, and give you standard operating procedures that will ensure that you are operating and being seen operating at a uh, manner consistent with the uh, laws and suggestions that are out there now so that your business will continue to thrive and we thwart off any possible litigation. Um, plus, you create a, a better, more, a better, safer, healthier environment for your staff. Um, and um, I'm also a P&L wonk, so I can help you find uh, the hidden money uh, in your in your in your in your profits and loss statements, I've been very good at it for many years for many companies and in, in different levels, and can always find that. And my favorite my favorite piece of work is training. All of these things need training. That's what I do best. You can oh, reach awesome. me at you can reach that. me at Steen Sellers at S T E E N Sellers at Gmail dot com. Steen Sellers at Gmail dot com. And I'll I'm put that in the show notes too. So I'm yeah, also on I'll LinkedIn. put links to your stuff. I'm also on LinkedIn. Cool. And as I said, I'll put that all in the show notes so people can click on those and, and contact you. So you're very kind. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for coming on. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Order Up podcast. And we will talk to you guys soon.